Hello, everyone, and thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Scott Lincecum. I'm Vice President of General Economics and Trade here at the Cato Institute. And I want to welcome you in the audience and those watching online to another thrilling installment of Cato's uh, Defending Globalization Project with Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Awela, Director General of the World Trade Organization. Today, we'll have a frank and hopefully entertaining discussion of all things trade. But before we get to that, please allow me a moment to set the table. The Defending Globalization Project is intended to, well, uh, defend globalization. That is, the relatively free movement of stuff, people, capital, and ideas across national borders from its increasingly vocal critics. And for nearly 30 years, the World Trade Organization and the multilateral trading system have undergirded this globalization, serving as a negotiating forum for 164 member governments, providing a, a negotiating, excuse me, a system for resolving disputes among them, and is acting as an essential clearinghouse for trade-related information. And as a former international trade lawyer and continued data dork, I wholeheartedly endorse all three of those pillars. It's an excellent, excellent. Place. Anyway, the importance of the WTO really to modern globalization can't be overstated. Over three-quarters of all cross-border trade is carried out based on WTO members' commitments, commitments national governments have voluntarily undertaken and that often nix long-standing and politically sensitive restrictions on trade in goods and services, industrial and agricultural subsidies, and other discriminatory economic policies. Meanwhile, the WTO's dispute settlement system has long been considered the crown jewel of international law, a system that national governments have successfully used hundreds of times to peacefully resolve serious disagreements over nettlesome trade restrictions and, amazingly enough, to encourage members acting inconsistently with their commitments to revise their offending measures, usually without retaliation by the complaining government or any other type of dangerous escalation. Escalation. Those who understand the tricky political economy of trade policy know this is no small thing, and it's a testament to just how much member governments have long valued the multilateral system and their nation's good standing therein. The WTO's crucial role in checking protectionism Checking protectionism helps us explain why global trade has increased from $5 trillion in 1995, the year the WTO was founded, to almost $25 trillion in 2022. The system's not the only reason for these gains, but it's certainly a big one. So, why are we here? Well, despite decades of success and the overwhelming benefits of trade, the WTO faces growing challenges and growing skepticism, particularly among American policymakers, regarding the value of the organization and of globalization more broadly. Today, WTO rules and dispute settlement system are on the defensive, and Washington often, unfortunately, seems to be leading the charge. For those of us who follow trade policy, this is in one sense surprising and quite frankly depressing. The United States was not only a driving force behind the creation of the WTO and its predecessor, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, but also was very successful in using WTO rules and disputes to advance American trade and foreign policy objectives, usually in a more liberal direction. In another sense, however, I think we all get it. Rightly or wrongly, today, trade is a four-letter word in D.C. and on the campaign trail. And if you're going to claim globalization has victimized millions of Americans, you're going to need at least one villain doing the victimizing. To a lesser extent, 
uh, WTO rules and procedures, some real and some imagined, have been percolating in Congress for decades. And for those interested in those WTO myths and realities, our project just published a short essay on this very thing, so please do check it out. Anyway, in sum, the WTO, like globalization itself, is on defense today, and we're defending globalization, so who better to talk with us about all this stuff than our guest today? Dr. Ngozi Nkonjo Awela took office as WTO Director General in 2021 and has been insanely busy ever since. In the last two plus years, she has spearheaded efforts to not merely write the WTO ship and conclude various negotiations and new member accessions, but to reassert the importance of globalization and the WTO for economic growth, for economic development, and for the environment. Before becoming the Director General, Dr. Ngozi twice served as Nigeria's finance minister and briefly as foreign minister, the first woman to hold both positions. She also had a 25-year career at the World Bank as a development economist, rising to the number two position there. Throughout this impressive year, career, Dr. Ngozi has been a firm believer in and vocal champion of the power of trade to lift developing countries out of poverty, to help them and others achieve robust economic growth, and to make the world greener along the way. She has more awards and accolades than I can even begin to mention, and she writes powerfully and often on trade issues. This includes, I should note, an excellent piece in Foreign Affairs last year on all the reasons why the world still needs globalization, and I should add, the World Trade Organization, a piece that actually prodded me to reach out to her about participating in Cato's Defending Globalization project. Today's discussion is hopefully not the last of her participation, but we can discuss that later. In the meantime, please join me in welcoming to the Cato Institute, WTO Director General Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala. So, uh, just so you know the run of show for today, we're going to have uh, a series of questions. I'll take the moderator's prerogative and start with those, uh, and then we'll open it up to the audience for about 20 minutes of questioning there. Um, I'm going to start with a, a softball, since you were so kind to, to join <laughs> us here. We'll get to the harder questions next. Um, as I already noted, you've enjoyed a long and distinguished career uh, studying development economics and globalization. What first drew you to the field, and what's the most surprising thing you've seen or learned over this time? Well, first, thank you, Scott, and let me commend, uh, compliment the Cato Institute on this uh, series on globalization, which has looked at all aspects. Um, the only thing I want to tell you is that I don't really feel on the defensive. Great. I have to say that. I just want us to state the facts about globalization. I don't feel like I have to fight to defend it, because... If people do away with it, what will transpire is going to be so unimaginable, and we'll come to that. So I think what we need to do is to remind people what it has delivered and what its failures have been, because there have been some, and we have to be candid about it. The issue is how they were dealt with. So we'll come to that, yeah, but I don't feel largely on the different yes of course it's part of the campaign trail now but yeah. i don't feel like you know as if i'm on the ropes or anything having to fight <laughs> well it's, it's honestly it's great to hear because yeah. you know for those of us in the dc policy community myself i in particular it often feels like i'm defending so much of this but it's great to hear 
maybe outside of Washington. Uh, I think Washington when I State. first joined the WTO, to be honest, I felt that way. Yeah. But, you know, we've since been able to show the WTO can be successful and can produce results, you know, as we did at our 12th ministerial last year, and be able to put forward strong arguments. We are not, uh, I'm not saying we are home free. Yeah. I just feel like people, the costs of actually implementing what some people are thinking will be so huge. So. Yeah. Well, so um, let's yeah, see, so circle back, question. sorry, to your question. So yeah. what, why, <laughs> why'd you get into all this stuff and all this trouble? And uh, what, what do you think is the most surprising thing you've seen since? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, why I got into it is a little story from when I was nine years old. My father was a mathematical economist. And when I was nine, I, he was preparing his lectures. He was an academic one day, and I was bothering him to take me to the university bookstore to get some children's books. He reached out and grabbed a very thick volume and gave it to me to read. I was just nine, and he said, read the first chapter, and I'm going to quiz you after. So I opened this. I couldn't understand what the hell it was saying, and I was crying all through for the next one hour, after which he finished his lecture notes and came and asked me, I later found out it was a volume of Sam Wilson. <laughs> um, and, um, and so that made me decide I'll never go anywhere near economics. It was incomprehensible. <laughs> but as I got to university level, I found that what really interested me, and maybe it was also my parents' coach, was serving people and trying to make, trying to deliver outside of yourself and your immediate environment. What could you do? to be of service, especially in a developing country, how can you help? And, and that drove me, to cut a long story short, by the time I got to my first year at Harvard, I decided that economics was a field which would en enable one to deal with real policies that would make a real change in people's lives. So that's how I got there. Um, now, what has surprised me uh, the most in, in, in the field? I think what is surprising to me is how quickly bad policies and poor macroeconomic environments can reverse good progress in a country and really set people back. Just how quickly and then just how difficult it is, how many years and how much effort it takes to bring a country back once it has reached uh, those difficult uh, periods. Yeah. And I see it repeatedly over and over, not only in my own country during my time, because of course I was finance minister for seven years in two episodes, um, and, and, but all over Africa and in fact all over the world. So that, that never ceases to surprise me that a country can be doing well and then you have a change in, in policies, bad governance, bad management, and things go back a decade or two. I think the second thing that is clear to me is that institutions matter. I know economists say that, but you can see those countries that have strong institutions, they tend to do an, a social contract. What do I mean by that? There are some policies that no matter the change in government or governance, stay the same. If you have a strong social contract and strong institutions, a country tends to do better, and those that don't, don't do as well. Those are the two lessons that I'm taking from a life's observation. 
So let's stick with the surprise theme uh, a little more here. I've, I've said during the course of our project um, that if you asked me a decade ago whether something like our project was necessary uh, after all the data and the history and the experience on globalization and incomes and development and poverty, after the late 1990s and the WTO protests in Seattle and all of that, and after, after all that um, I would have said you were crazy that we'd have to have a project list like this, quite frankly. Yet, of course, here we are. Um, so I ask you, are you surprised that we're having to sit here in 2023, and especially in the United States, and uh, defend or reassert the case for open trade and globalization and for the WTO, um, especially in regards to its effect on the global poor and on the environment. Are you, are you surprised that we're here doing this? Scott, I'll give you the economist two-handed <laughs> response. <laughs> yes, on the one hand, I'm surprised, and no, on the other, I'm not. So what is the yes part? And this is the part of re reasserting. It's surprising. Uh, yes, of course, the United States was at the making. And we go back. When I think of the WTO, I always think of it together with the GATT. And, and so that's a 75-year history of having created a system that has largely delivered, and which, in a sense, I term a global public good. I know it's not a, the best use of the term, but I see it that way. That has been husbanded over time, has largely delivered. So yes, the fact we now have to reassert, I like that word, what it, it has delivered can be, so in the place that created it, can be surprising. And let's remember some of the things, as you yourself said in some of your work, the globalization, reminding people it lifted over a billion people out of poverty, that rich countries benefited. You know, you look at World Bank uh, data, I think they looked at between 1995 to 2011 or those uh, years, and saw that uh, globalization and the trading system have managed to uh, make rich countries to increase income by GDP by 50% yeah. over that period of time. And uh, so that's rich countries. Of course, for poor countries and emerging markets, 150% from a lower base. So it's not, and the Peterson Institute work also shows that the US has benefited from the international trading system since the Second World War by up to about $2.3 trillion. So, you know, there are, specific, there are so many studies that have been done that have demonstrated how the trading system has helped not only poor countries, but rich countries. Right. So it's reasserting and reminding people uh, of that that I think is the surprise that we, we, we have to say yes. But is there a no part? I'm not surprised because the globalization has also had it's discontents. And people should remember Joe Stiglitz's work way back, which was a bestseller. Uh, at that time, you know, there were many who didn't really listen, but it's true. There have been sides of globalization that have not worked for everybody. There were poor people in rich countries who were left behind, and there were poor countries who were left out of the system. So the issue is, does that then mean you throw out globalization? No. It means that we look and ask the question, how do we take care of those uh, who have been marginalized within the system? But trade, as you said, you need someone to blame and to knock. And even where technology is the culprit for 
taking away jobs, trade is often blamed, yeah. and that's where the problem lies. For sure, for sure. It's, uh, all the acronyms, WTO, NAFTA, it's, it's, those, it's complicated and scary sometimes. I, um, so for all the talk against globalization, though, uh, you know, one of the things that we've written in our project and one of the things that your organization has documented so well over the last few years is that global trade and value chains have remained pretty darn durable given a global pandemic, all the political rhetoric and the other things. Um, and of course, the details are changing as they always do. Some policies certainly here in the United States have regressed on the margins. But still, um, you know, this whole death of globalization thing has been, I think, wildly oversold. Um, but is there a point at which, in your view, the political rhetoric, the marginal policy changes, really start to steamroll and have a more significant impact on the trade reality? Or maybe is that already happening, we're just not seeing it yet because of the data? And then finally, related to that, um, in your view, and you've covered this a bit, I mean, what are the costs? I mean, if this really does start to be a, a big-time retreat, um, what are the costs that we'll face for the developed world, but also, of course, for the developing world? Well, uh, yeah, thank you. You know, the work we've done shows that trade has been pretty resilient. We are at, if you look at the figures for global trade, it's at an all-time high of about $30.5 trillion, uh, $30 trillion, $25 trillion in goods trade, the rest in services. So it's at an all-time high. And if you look at numbers of trade between the U.S. and China, for instance, or China and EU, they are also at all-time highs. For 2022, that's the latest. We have full figures. You know, the U.S. Commerce Department released 691 or so billion of trade between U.S. and, and, and uh, China. For the EU, it's even more. It's, about, it's slightly over $900 billion worth of trade. So, so right now, in aggregate, um, the, the data we have doesn't quite substantiate the loud noise you hear, but do, does that mean that they are not issues? They are. We see emerging fragmentation in trade, and that's why we sounded a warning almost uh, starting a year ago that we are beginning to see signs of fragmentation, and that could be very costly to the world, including and especially so to developing countries and emerging markets. So some of the work we did just trying to see, suppose the world fragments into two trading blocks, what does it mean? And we did some simulations, you know, using UN voting patterns to simulate the two trading blocks. And we found that, um, that you know, the world would lose in about 5% of GDP in the longer term. Um, that's a lot. Yeah. That's like the economy of losing Japan's economy to the world. And for emerging markets and developing countries, the numbers would be in the double digits, like 11 to 12%. So they would lose the most from fragmentation of world trade into blocks. So we are just we were sounding the warning that this is this would be very costly to the world if we were to do it. Um, and and then uh, you would really be signing a kind of sentence on emerging markets and developing countries who have for a long time been told that open markets, trading systems, no protectionism, that's the way to go. And just as they are getting into, uh, the, the, trying to integrate into world trade, and then you know, you're turning 
uh, your back on them. So that's why there's also a north-south divide that is emerging as southern countries begin to question what is happening uh, with global trade. So the signs of fragmentation we're seeing, of course, uh, uh, that are emerging, you look at, even though you have these high numbers, if you go behind the numbers, you can see that in certain sectors, trade between China and the U.S. is already on the right. decline. Um, of course, in, in the technology sectors, in semiconductors, right. in, in certain areas. And, and uh, so that is emerging. Um, we also see in another simulation that trade with, between like-minded countries seems to be growing faster yes. than between non-like-minded. If you simulate two blocks of like-minded and non-like-minded, just to simplify it. Um, so those are some warning signs that we're beginning to see um, that we need to pay attention to. Now, you know, can I just say something? Does that mean that we shouldn't look at some of the vulnerability of supply chains that have emerged? We have to admit that during the pandemic, we saw vulnerability sure. in supply chains. But what, what is the diagnosis? People blame trade and supply chains. But if you look at the issue, you see that the issue is really over-concentration of the production of certain products in certain geographies and in certain sectors. And that does not build resilience. So I do agree with those who say that let's look at certain sectors that are very important to the world and see how we deal with deconcentrating supply chains so that the world can be more resilient. That is the problem we really face. Semiconductors, 90% or more manufactured in one geography or one part of the world. Is that resilience? No. There's some argument that we should look at that. Pharmaceuticals, you saw during the pandemic how, let's say, a continent like Africa imports 99% of vaccines and 90% of pharmaceuticals. Should that be they were at the back of the queue when all this happened? No. Maybe we need to deconcentrate some of these pharmaceutical supply chains. So I think there's an argument for building resilience. This is why I'll end on this note on this. We are arguing for a new reimagining of globalization. So we are not saying that people who have problems are completely wrong. There are issues to look at. Let's reimagine globalization to De to deconcentrate some of these supply chains, to build more resilience by looking at how we relocate the supply chains, by putting them in countries and in regions of rich countries that were at the margins of the global supply chains before. There are poorer countries that have a good environment for business. I'm not advocating just going anywhere. It's not just China plus one, which is Vietnam or Indonesia or India, it could be China plus Morocco. It could be China plus Bangladesh, China plus Brazil, China plus Senegal, China plus, you know, uh, China plus South Africa, you name it, China plus Nigeria. <laughs> I'm sure if I forget my own yeah, country, they, they will attack smart. me and say, so, so we are just saying, where there's a good business environment, you can try to build resilience. Um, and that is what we're advocating by saying re-globalization. Within the US, you can look at those regions where you know, there has been a hit, where people have been losing jobs. And I want to use this to say that, by the way, 
there, you know, 50 million uh, um, jobs turnover in the U.S. each year. The Peterson Institute work has also shown that only 0.6% of this is attributable to trade. Yep. Technology is in play, but of course it's easy to blame trade. Nevertheless, we're arguing if you want to relocate supply chains, look at those regions where people have been left behind. We're not against that because this will help us build a new kind of globalization. Sure. Yeah, one of the things we've always said is that, you know, for... American policymakers so concerned about China, while you know there are free trade agreements with other countries that could be pursued, uh, cough, cough, TPP, and others that you know would achieve those goals without all of the protectionism and, and uh, industrial policy. But anyway, um, let's continue. The the political shift against globalization and trade has several origins, of course. But one big one seems to be the notion, uh, particularly on the left, uh, that trade exacerbates climate change and therefore that less trade would, would magically mitigate it. Now, we've shown in our project, uh, in another essay, that the environmental race to the bottom is mostly a myth. Over the long term, at least, countries uh, start to get richer and develop economically through trade and through other things, uh, and they end up eventually with cleaner environments and lower emissions. But that's more of an indirect thing, and it's certainly not immediate. Um, but you and your organization have hit on more direct and rapid benefits of trade for the environment. Um, so, and how, of course, I think, just as importantly, how retreating from the global economy instead of actually mitigating environmental damage could actually make things worse, right? So I was wondering if you could elaborate on that project and your findings. Well, thank you very much. I think this is critically important. I'm someone who believes uh, without any apologies that climate change is an existential threat, that if we do not act We'll find, we'll find ourselves, you know, at the margins of, we're looking at issues now, but the very thing that is threatening our very existence, if we ignore that, then that's a big issue. And therefore, from the WTO standpoint also, I, I always say, my mantra has been that the WTO is about people. If you look at the founding documents of the WTO, the Marrakesh Agreement in the preamble, it says the WTO's purpose is to enhance living standards, help create employment, and support sustainable development. I mean, what could be more attractive than that? Because it's all about people, and it's what attracted me to go for this job. So if it is all about people, and my argument has been that people have been left out of the WTO for a long time. With all due respect, lawyers took over. <laughs> and the WTO became defined by the dispute settlement system, and everybody else forgot that there were other agreements that being delivered there that really help people. So the, so the WTO and trade can really help with environmental issues and with sustainability. It's, in, it's found in DNA. And so, uh, yes, it is true that the logistics of trade do lead to high emissions. Shipping, about 3%, uh, the International Energy Agency has estimated 3% contributions to greenhouse gas emissions. Aviation, less, like, just less than 2%. So that's happening. But those industries are working on green hydrogen and other pathways to lower the logistics uh, the emissions from logistics. So the question now is, what can trade itself and WTO rules do to help uh, uh, with 
the, the, with uh, mitigating, to, with, to help with getting us to net zero by 2050. That's what I think about all the time. And we actually uh, insisted that there's a, a very positive uh, uh, aspect to, to trade and trade policies, that at COP28 just finished, we managed to get a trade day for the first time ever in COP in which we had a trade pavilion with UNCTAD and the International Trade Center to try and illustrate some of this. It was highly successful. But what we did do was develop, and I brought it along with me, this document. It says, Trade Policy Tools for Climate Action. And what we did was to look specifically at trade policies and trade actions that could contribute to net zero. Let me just take one or two to illustrate. Very simple-minded. If you look at the tariff regimes in many countries, you will find that the tariffs on renewables and cleaner goods are often higher than for fossil fuel products. So we say we want to get to net zero, but your own tariff policies are incentivizing, you know, um, uh, dirtier, browner products. So we urge countries in their nationally determined contributions to integrate something like this into the look at how they will deliver. Because this is a simple thing in which you can recalibrate. And I know that in many developing countries, you know, we import second-hand cars, which often emit, yeah. you know, because we want people to, we want young people and, and those who have aspirations to be in the middle class to be able to buy cars. So we often have cheaper uh, cheaper tariffs on those than on hybrids and electric vehicles. So looking at these tariff regimes can help. A second area, government procurement. We have a government procurement agreement at the WTO. Do you know that government procurement is a $13 trillion business? And if you can use it, 13% of world GDP, you can use it to incentivize green procurement and green purchase. So just by looking at the way you procure and you spend your government money, that's another thing you can do. And I'll end, there are about 10 of these, but let me mention one that I'm very passionate about, subsidies. We have about $1.2 trillion in fossil fuel subsidies in the world. And by the way, much of it is in rich countries. Yeah. And those are direct subsidies, not indirect. We have another 680 or so billion in agricultural subsidies, much, much of which is trade distorting, okay? We have another 22 billion in fishery subsidies that incentivize illegal, unreported, and overfishing of our oceans. And I can go on, 200 billion in bad water subsidies. So we can have about $1.7 trillion in subsidies that are not helpful, that are actually distorting trade, environment, and so on, why, why do we have them? Why can't we phase out these subsidies and direct those resources actually to helping developing countries finance the transition to net zero? So here we are with a large amount doing a, a damage, and we talk about it here, along with carbon pricing and taxation and other tools we can use on the trade side to incentivize good environmental policy. And our members really at the WTO are working very hard in, in, in the Trade and Environment Committee looking at some of these issues 
and how they can approach being as helpful as possible to the environment. So let me stop there, but you can say I could speak all day on this because well, I'm very passionate about it. But those who think trade is a problem, no. Trade is part of the solution, and the tools are there if you want to, uh, to use them. Yeah, in the United States, of course, it's incredibly frustrating to hear uh, the Biden administration, on the one hand, talk about the need to get greener and, and support renewables, and then on the other hand, putting tariffs on solar panels and wind towers and all of that type of stuff as well, right? Um, well, I don't want to into the no, I, policies, sorry, but I do, I do want to say one thing. The WTO is firmly supportive. We have nothing in our rules against governments trying to do the best to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions and to get to net zero. We're very supportive. I think the question is, when you put in policies, which, what, is, what are the details? To, to ensure that there are not policies that are keeping others out, that are anti-competitive or protectionist. Um, but all policies, for example, if you incentivize research and innovation, that is fantastic because that will bring us new ways of dealing with climate change. And by the way, without trade, you cannot diffuse the technologies you know, that you have in the world that are coming up if you take away trade. Trade has been really instrumental in, in getting these technologies diffused all over the world. You cannot do it without trade, and that's why trade is central. Yeah, one of the things that we discussed in that Race to the Bottom essay is how uh, countries are decoupling. They're, they're growing faster while their emissions are now declining. Um, so a different kind of decoupling, a good type of decoupling. And it's happening faster in poorer countries and developing countries par in part because of that technology dissemination. Certainly is something to, to be encouraged. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I don't think we're doing enough of it. But enough of that. Um, we have time. I have time for one more question. Um, and now I'm embarrassed because it's a trade lawyer question, but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask it anyway. I have uh, nothing against trade lawyers. <laughs> we just need to keep them in check sometimes. Uh, good, good. Well, <laughs> uh, more seriously, so we, we do know, you know, the dispute settlement system, as I noted, um, has long been considered the shining example, at least, again, among, among lawyer types, um, of multilateralism done right. You know, it's an effective, if slow and imperfect way to resolve trade disputes, without escalating an out-of-control protectionism or, or actual you know, uh, fighting and worse. Um, yet one of the more depressing and surprising things, as I noted, is that the you know, dispute settlement system, uh, particularly thanks to some efforts of the United States, has been sidelined, um, and the appellate body remains um, non-functional, non I'll put it that way. Um, and you know, now we have uh, 29 appeals that are what we call into the void. They've been appealed, but since there's no appellate body, they're just kind of sitting around. So um, do you think, though, that this impasse is just a trade lawyer problem, right? Or is it actually having an effect on nations' trade and industrial policies? Is it actually encouraging more discriminatory action? Because quite frankly, yeah, you can get a panel report after a few years, but then it can be appealed off into nothingness. Um, and then, I guess to get really wonky for a second, um, what happens to those 29 and perhaps growing appeals if we ever do get a resolution? Well, yes, I, I think for too long, like I said, the WTO became defined 
by the dispute settlement system. But you can see from this discussion that there's so much going on in the organization on so many other fronts, and it's one of the most interesting places uh, uh, to be. Um, but the dispute settlement system, there's absolutely no doubt, is that crown jewel. And I do agree, because there's none other like it uh, uh, in, in, in the world. Um, and you also have to accept that if you're going to make multilateral agreements, not having the forum where those agreements uh, could be, you know, accountability could be gotten, does undermine the credibility of the agreements. So continuing to write, have agreements where the place at which if someone violates them, you can't do anything, you know, so does speak to the credibility. So I agree with that. And that is why it is essential that we uh, try to reform uh, the, the dispute settlement system. So um, does it, the criticisms that the US had, is there some validity? I think so. I think there's some validity to those criticisms and that the system needs to be looked at and reformed. But that's what you do. You don't shut it down. You reform it so that you can still have a credible system because of what you said, Scott. Imagine if everybody starts doing unilateral actions. It, it, it will hurt everyone. It will hurt the US, it will hurt China, it will hurt the smaller countries even more. That's not what you want. So let's look at reforming, taking seriously those criticisms the US has labeled. Why does it take so long? It's supposed to take 90 days to get through, okay, uh, um, to get through, um, I don't want to call it a case, whatever that is put before an action that is put before the panel. Right, sure. and, and it takes more than that. Sometimes it's taken much longer. In fairness, some of the cases being brought are much more sophisticated and complicated than in the past, but we shouldn't take that long. Um, making case law, uh, they, those are some of the criticisms. So I want us to look at all the criticisms and see how we can do away with it. The developing countries also have criticisms. They feel the system is not accessible to them, it's too costly, it's too complicated. Let's also change that. And what I want to say now is that that reform is ongoing. It is true that as now, I first want to correct the impression that nothing is happening at all. Right. The panel level, it's two levels, panel and appellate body. The panel level is going on. They have, as I speak, 12 panels are sitting. So members are still bringing cases. Right to the dispute settlement system, and it is functioning. But when there's now, uh, it goes now to the circuit, there's an appeal to the appellate body, because that is not functioning, it's appealed into the void. Mm -hmm. And there are now 30 of these appeals, and what will happen to those will be decided as we reform mm -hmm. the system. The good news is that after so a period in which nothing was happening, the reforms to the appellate, uh, to the dispute settlement system are actually happening now. And I, I do want to commend the U.S. for participating um, in, in trying to see how we reform this system. I think we should try to reform it in a way that will be acceptable to all members, including the United States. The U.S. has brought the most cases. Yeah. 
to this to the dispute settlement system, about 57 cases is 151 of them. So it's one by far. Now, of course, the U.S. also has the most cases brought against it, about 86. And, you know, it's lost quite a lot of those, and I think that's what upsets people. <laughs> but I believe we should reform the system to work for everyone. And, and uh, shutting it down is not the answer, because ultimately to lead to everyone doing what, you know, a big challenge for everyone if we don't have um, uh, um, a place where you can adjudicate these disputes. And uh, I do want to say one thing. The dispute settlement system had a lot of alternative ways of settling disputes. I think what happened over time is people became overly legal. As soon as there's a dispute, members are supposed to first, there's provisions for them to talk to each other for mediation, arbitration, third party involvement, all these things are there. But they started not using those mechanisms. I'm going straight to the court and the appellate, uh, to the uh, uh, dispute settlement mechanism with the appellate body. I think that is also not right. I think that now members have begun using some of those other alternatives much more. We've had several uh, panel reports, about 12 or 13, no, I think 11 have been accepted without even going to the appellate body. There are several disputes in which members are trying to talk to each other to mediate. You've seen China and Australia, for instance, right. that went to the uh, dispute settlement system and then they are talking to each other and through mediation and, and through direct dialogue, they are settling their issues. So we should use the dispute settlement system in full with all the mechanisms. The Europeans have also, there's another interim the multi-party interim arbitration system that has been started by EU and several other members who belong to it as an alternative. So we do now have several avenues and instruments that can be used, and, and we should use all of those plus a reformed uh, appellate body and, and dispute settlement system. So that's my yeah. answer. Let's no, reform it, it. Let's not kill it. I understand. And yeah, I, I do think it's a great point. Um, you know, one, when the appellate body problems first began, I think there was a, a quite legitimate I, a, a concern I held as well that uh, we weren't going to see, you know, that was going to be totally shut down the system. But it's been good to see panels continue consultations again, getting revived, yes. um, the first stage of the panel process. So enough of the lawyer stuff. I, I want to open up the questions to the audience. Please wait until you have the microphone. Um, and we'll call on you as, as we can get through the Q&A. Um, why don't we start down here in front on the right? Thank you so much, Scott, and great to see you, Dr. Ngozi. Ken Monaghan, VP for International Policy. I'll say that again. Um, do, uh, Dr. Ngozi, great to see you again. Scott, thank you for this wonderful discussion and for this opportunity. Um, I'm the VP for International Policy at the National Association of Manufacturers, and Dr. Ngozi, it was great to see you uh, with our CEO last March in Geneva. And while we were there, uh, we were talking a lot about the TRIPS waiver and our opposition to the expansion of the waiver to cover therapeutics and diagnostics, our concern um, that this will undermine innovation and really undermine our shared goal of having those therapeutics and diagnostics, we need to respond to the next global health crisis. Um, so I wanted to get your feedback on the ongoing discussions. We know the TRIPS Council has been meeting um, multiple times on this issue. Um, any updates you can share from your perspective on those discussions? 
And as we look ahead to MC13, obviously there's going to be a lot potentially on the table. Um, how the TRIPS waiver discussions could factor into uh, the ministerial from your perspective. Thank and, you. And before you answer that, trade folks use a lot of acronyms. So just so everybody else in the audience knows, this is an intellectual property issue under the WTO agreement on intellectual property rights. So with that, please. Okay. Okay, do you want to take two or three, or should uh, oh, I just... Oh, sure. Yeah, questions? why don't we go to her in the middle, in the black. Hi, um, Dr. Conjo Uela. Uh, Ali Renison. Um, I was until very recently a policy advisor to Kemi Badenoch, who you know, um, the <coughs> UK Trade Secretary of State and Business. Um, I think the question that I have is, um, I think I've seen quite sort of comments reported or at least attributed to you where there is some sort of concern about the concept of friendshoring. Um, now, obviously, we've had kind of countries going deeper, further and faster with countries based on pre-existing relations, um, uh, sort of common values, et cetera, that are shared. I wonder if you could expand a bit on what your actual sort of views on that going forward are. Views on friendshoring. Yeah. Okay. okay, let's go one more down low and then I'll hit the back on the next round. You, ma'am, right there in the middle. Hardest for the mic guy, sorry. Hello, I'm Sharon Freeman, uh, president of Jim's Wisdom Consulting. I was very interested in your comment about uh, deconcentrating the supply chain, but one thing I'd like your opinion on, as you, you know me, you know I've worked in a lot of countries, 120 of them, and I see um, sort of degradation in a way of capacity. Uh, in many areas and sectors in various developing countries. And so to deconcentrate the supply chain, uh, there needs to be better quality control mechanisms. For instance, uh, you mentioned COVID. During COVID, we learned that there are like 84 <laughs> suppliers in that chain in different countries. But it's difficult to, to be sure that the quality is being controlled, and so it is directly related to the capacity of the manufacturers in other countries. So I'm just wondering what advocacy the WTO uh, role might be playing in, in terms of trying to help to develop the capacity in, in certain other countries so that they can be a part of the supply chain. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Um, thank you. First, on the TRIPS waiver uh, question, um, you know, this has been a challenge uh, with industry believing that um, a waiver to intellectual property uh, to allow those who want to manufacture some of these products in the pharmaceuticals, for instance, will undermine research and innovation. And I want to make it clear that we strongly believe that we need to incentivize research and innovation. Because if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have had the development of new vaccines that helped humanity during this pandemic and all the other new things, even for green products. So that is clear. I think the question is, are there actions that need to be taken when we have emergency situations, for instance, that also impact humanity. And what we try to do, the, so the WTO houses intellectual property agreements in, of the world, and this is why this question uh, is coming. And so during the time of, of the COVID-19, there was this issue of 
access to vaccines. And many countries found that they were behind in the queue. They didn't have access at critical times uh, when they needed the vaccines. And by the time they got the vaccines, either skepticism had set in or it was too late and so on. So there was this whole argument at the WTO about could there be a waiver to this so countries could manufacture. What we managed to do was to find a compromise. This had been raging for almost a couple of, uh, more than a year, 10 months, or more than 12 months before I joined. Meanwhile, the pandemic was raging and people were dying. The idea, so we looked at the agreement and there are ways to introduce flexibilities in it on a temporary basis that could allow countries access to be able to manufacture uh, those, uh, th those drugs by overriding uh, some of the provisions. So we did not, I mean, it's called a waiver, but what we introduced were really more flexibilities that permitted the countries to be able to do this for a period of five years. They, were, they now argued that this was extended to vaccines, it should be extended to to therapeutics and diagnostics, and that's what's on the table now. So uh, debate has been raging at the TRIPS Council, as you know, and within the General Council of the WTO, uh, we are still not clear or further along in terms of uh, agreement. People, developing countries have not given up. They are still insisting that this, there needs to be this waiver. Developed countries that have the centers of manufacture and the pharma industry that are still insisting this would undermine research and uh, undermine um, innovation and research. So we are stuck. That's the International Trade Center of the U.S. went in and did uh, some hearings and did some work on this. But, you know, it doesn't give a recommendation. It presents a very objective and balanced case and then says to you, you make up your mind what you, you want to do with it. So that's where we are. It's not off the table. And I would again urge all parties to look for a suitable compromise to this. On the one hand, like I said, we don't want to undermine innovation. On the other hand, we've also got to think, what do we do when we have an emergency and people are dying in the world when the technology exists? Is there any way the pharmaceutical industry can be forward-leaning in trying to make sure that access is improved and is available? Those, that's the kind of debate I think we need to have and come up with a suitable answer that doesn't make people feel that they can die just because they are poor. You know. um, then... Uh, um, French shoring. French shoring. Uh, well, you know, because of the vulnerability of supply chains during the pandemic, as I said, the idea of French shoring, uh, let's not be over-dependent. And of course, because of U.S.-China tensions that are very open and apparent, EU-China tensions, U.K.-China tensions maybe, uh, everyone is looking at how do we bring more of our supply chain home or locate them with friends. Friends, you know, hence the French shoring. And of course, I've already stated the case that I do believe there, there are some vulnerabilities. While supply chains have been largely resilient, there have been some vulnerabilities. And this issue of concentration of certain supply chains is one we need to look at. The question is where to locate them. And there are two reasons why I say we need to look beyond French shoring. The first reason is, who is a friend? 
Who is a friend? I always ask that. A friend today might become a non-friend tomorrow. If there are changes in leadership, in regime, in, and you know this year there are so many elections in the world, over 3.3 billion people or so will be participating in over 50 countries in elections. So someone you think is a friend today might be a non-friend tomorrow. So definition of friend, when you're looking at international relations, sometimes it's about interest, not friendship. Um, then secondly, so I question that. <laughs> um, I think the second reason has to be because of issues of climate change. That is the biggest threat we face. If we want to be resilient in the world, then we should think when we are deconcentrating supply chains to locate them in such a fashion that if something happens, a climatic event, we are less affected in the world than we would have been if we again just concentrated things in certain countries because they are friends. So that is why I'm, the, I'm not, I love Vietnam and Indonesia and <laughs> India and I want them all to develop. So make no mistake. But I'm saying that if, if businesses fall into the, this China plus one strategy again, we'll have another set of concentrations. And that may not be wise for the world. You know, so let us look, they're friends, Europe is also a friend, but can we spread these supply chains in a way that makes more sense for resilience? So that's my opinion. Yes, go to your friends, but be careful. <laughs> um, on degradation of capacity of supply. So when we ask for deconcentration of supply chains, we of course don't say supply chains should just go anywhere. And in any case, Business is very good at making sound decisions about where it should locate. Always, and they are doing it already. All we are saying to business is don't have a tunnel vision. You know, the, the perception of risk of certain parts of the world is way above what the actual risk is. So certain parts of the world of developing countries, whether it's Latin America or Africa, are perceived as being very risky, therefore we won't go there. Meanwhile, you've got conditions there that are very propitious to your producing. So we are saying, please move to these places, but maintain the same quality. Those places can also give you the same kind of quality you can see in others. Morocco is now a good part of the aviation supply chain. You know, for that's something people do not know. Of course, Bangladesh is a strong part of the textile supply chain. Everybody knows that. And we need, but they could do much more. Um, you know, we need quality. So by deconcentrating, we are not saying go where the capacity is poor. You know, companies need to maintain the same high quality that is demanded elsewhere. Just because you move to a developing country doesn't mean you should anything goes, whether it's with regard to labor, being properly compensated, with regard to quality oversight, and, and so on, we should have this, or environmental issues, attention to carbon emissions and all, we should have the same strong approach you would do elsewhere. So I'm with you. And, and for the WTO, we have the capacity to help with quality issues. Um, yes, we do help developing countries who are you know, trying to improve the quality of the products uh, with trying to strengthen their standards so that they can better you know, enter world markets. 
We have the International Trade Center also, which is an offshoot of the WTO and UNCTAD that also does that kind of work. So we're there to, to help. But big companies don't really need us. Businesses have the capacity and the accountability to make sure that quality works in their supply chains. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. The businesses in their own interests and the interests of their customers are going to do a lot of that too. We have time for one more quick question. Let's go all the way in the back uh, there. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Maybe we can take two more. <laughs> okay, sure. We'll do one. There you go. Uh, my question is more at the philosophical level, and you've kind of danced around the subject, but I'd like to bring it up specifically for the last century, trade embargoes were considered an exception, a temporary exception. League of Nations in Italy, the UN in South Africa, and, and Rhodesia, and uh, Arabs in the embargo. And, but in the past 10 years, um, uh, trade embargoes have become much more common as a manifestation of national security policy uh, uh, within many of the largest trading um, countries. What is clearly happening is that um, a merger between national security policy in many countries and trade policy is slowly occurring and an embargo is a manifestation of your national security interests. Um, the question I have is, um, the, 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 do you, if this trend is continues and expands as it seems it is doing now, is this something that the WTO Secretariat should resist and uh, object to? Is this something that the Secretariat should ignore? Or is this something that they should embrace? And if you embrace it, will you start firing economists and hiring generals so you have a better understanding of national security issues as you deal with uh, trade policy? Thank you. And then we'll do one more up front. Oh, we got to just wait for the mic. Thank you. Thank you. I would like to commend Dr. Ngozi Okonjoiwala for the great job she is doing at the WTO and then for Cato Institute for organizing such a tremendous event. Um, considering the pros and cons, or the ups and downsides of the globalization, how can the World Trade Center support emerging economies to re-globalize? and build resilience in order to ensure that nobody or no economy is left out. I'm a bit concerned about that. Is there a way to align emerging economies or emerging economic realities and technological advancements to enhance that globalization um, converse benefits to everyone? Thank you. Thank you. Well, these are two, the tough, two tough questions. Right at the end. Yeah, right at the end. Well, um, on the trade embargoes, we've noticed an increase in, in uh, prohibitions and uh, restrict export restrictions, import restrictions. Uh, you look at import restrictions, and since we started monitoring this at the height of the, uh, the global financial crisis in 2009, have been mounting. And we've been talking to G20 countries, you know, 
as leaders, you know, that they need to show an example. But, you know, we, we have import restrictions now to the level where they are covering almost 10% of, of uh, world imports. That's a, um, a lot, and we've been really strongly advocating this. If we want free trade, we need to really look at loosening some of them and doing away with these restrictions. And uh, particularly when the war in Ukraine started, there were a lot of you know, uh, restrictions, export restrictions also yeah. started coming in. And our members, I must commend them, because they've been trying to remove several of these, and that's the, the tendency. So I'm agreeing with you that we are seeing some signs of increase of these restrictions. I don't want to talk about embargoes. I think what we are monitoring in real time is some of these restrictions and prohibitions. And of course, we are not, uh, we think that this hampers the free flow of trade and that the multilateral trading system must be safeguarded. So uh, we strongly urge. Now, national security grounds, I have to say that, of course, countries are the best arbiters of what is their national security and what's in their national security interest. We are not generals at the WTO to be able to pronounce on that. And this is one of the issues also uh, in the dispute settlement system. For sure. um, but as you say, as you mentioned, we have to be careful. If the national security exception becomes used for everything, then everybody will have recourse to it. And then that will totally undermine the system. So, that to, so to that extent, we can't run away from it. We are not the ones to interpret for a country. They, it's really up to them. But I think we need a good dialogue at the WTO among members. Yeah. Members have to talk to each other about what exists in present agreements and whether that is adequate uh, and what we do going forward. And I think that dialogue hopefully will come as we try to also reform the dispute settlement uh, system. So we don't want a situation in which these issues are used to undermine the system. Because if I start it, then anyone can wake up and say, well, you know, I don't um, allow this to be exported to another country. Maybe it's something you need to manufacture something in your country. And I mean, our country says, no, it's in my national security interest that we keep it right here. And then what happens? That will break down the world trading system. So yes, you're absolutely right. We, we want to encourage our members to talk to each other. That's the one thing the WTO provides, a forum for dialogue. And we have several committees set up. And I'm proud to say that the world does not know just how many of these kinds of disputes are resolved in these committees where members can table their objections and have the other member who is doing the action respond and have the thing sorted out. So we hope that we can encourage more of that and be able to deal with this in a way. Let me remind everyone again, 75% of world trade is taking place on WTO terms. And I know it's like the air you breathe. People just take it for granted. <laughs> Okay, world trade is going on, but when it unravels, we will have the kind of free for all that we had before the Second World War era in which people said, no, this doesn't work. We can create something better. So let's not 
unravel what works. Um, on the issue of de developing countries um, and how to help them integrate better into the world trading system, that is really something of great concern uh, to, to us at the WTO. Uh, developing countries feel that they have not gotten out of the world trading system uh, enough. As you know, the famous Doha development round <coughs> fell through and never happened. And there's, there are sore feelings uh, about that. But let's move forward. I think what we need to do is to move forward and see how, what are the new agreements that could be beneficial to developing countries? What are the flexibilities that in, in existing agreements that can be had that will be more helpful? There is something at, in the WTO called special and differential treatment, which allows developing countries to have more flexibilities in implementing agreements and more leeway in being exempted from some of the strictures that exist. But beyond that, are there new agreements that could be more beneficial to these countries? Are there flexibilities in existing agreements? Developing countries are asking for some of these flexibilities now, and they're bringing it to the 13th ministerial because they feel this will enable them to in industrialize faster. This will create more policy space so they can do better. And so we are actively now working on several of these requests by developing countries to see if the membership can agree uh, to support them. And uh, the atmosphere is good um, on many of these, uh, but difficult on others. And that also has to do with the issue of who is a developing country yeah. and the WTO, which is another chapter. <laughs> you know, the WTO, I came in very, as I came in, very interested to find that this is the one organization where you can self-identify. Yeah. You can say whether you're a developing country or developed. But we have other multilateral organizations where we know who at the World Bank, there are categorizations of who is a least developed country. Yes, we have that at the UN too. So that category is clear, but low income, uh, middle income, Upper middle income, these are well recognized, but at the WTO, it was a self-described system. And now that system, you know, there, there are issues in it because you have big countries, some of them, uh, you know, who are, oh, China is a developing country. Um, you know, some of the other well-off countries are developing. And so there's a question about it. Um, and so that also does bring a question mark when developing countries are asking for certain flexibilities. Uh, but we've, let me say this, in, in, during the 12th ministerial, we had a situation in which some of these developing countries, including China, stepped back and said, we will not have access to these flexibilities because we don't need them. And that's what we are trying. Can we have agreements? where those who don't need them can say we don't need them uh, and, and then allow those who are poor and really need to benefit. I think if we have that approach, we can help developing countries. And then let me end by saying that this re-globalization we're urging is also for the benefit of many developing countries who have good environments. So why shouldn't we receive some of these supply chains? Why shouldn't they relocate in our countries? So we are very strongly advocating that. I'm glad to say, if you go to the European Union, 
they are strongly supporting that and increasingly the U.S. for critical minerals, for instance. Critical minerals are very important now. Their processing and exploitation was very concentrated before in China. There is an att attempt to deconcentrate them. A lot of them in, on the African and Latin American continent have strong deposits of this. But the new way of doing it is not to go there and extract what we are saying is don't just go there and extract this to be processed elsewhere. Develop the whole supply chain there because they also have green, uh, some of, of the countries have the ability, or many, for green hydrogen. You can have clean energy or for, for hydroelectric power, clean energy married with critical mineral development. Why can't we do the whole supply chain there, create jobs there, train people, skill people, and everyone can benefit? So the EU is willing to put some money into it now. The U.S. is looking at uh, doing the same, and hopefully we can have a win-win situation for everyone for some of these supply chains. Thank you. And, and hopefully the United States can reauthorize our own generalized system of preferences, which can do that as well if any in Congress is watching. Uh, but anyway, that's enough. Um, we've gone on over, and I really appreciate um, this excellent discussion and great questions as well. Um, and for those who are, again, watching online um, and you're interested in all this stuff, please, you can go to Cato.org, Defending Globalization, to rewatch the video or check out the essays or anything else. And I do hope you can stay engaged in this as well. And thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.